everybody. Welcome to another episode of NBRI from the Center for Retailing Studies, Mays Business School, Texas A&M University. I'm your host, Venki Shankar, and today it's my pleasure to have Ashley Humphreys as our guest. Uh, Ashley is an Associate Professor of Marketing at the Medill School of in Northwestern University. She's trained as a sociologist. She studies consumer behavior and marketing strategy. Uh, her research investigates the role of legal and cultural institution in creating markets, the influence of language on consumer judgments of legitimacy, and the process of consumer co-creation. Uh, Ashley has developed and refined the method of automated content analysis or using computers to analyze textual data after a thorough qualitative analysis. Uh, Ashley is the author of Social Media, Enduring Principles, a textbook that was published in 2016. Uh, her work has been published in the Journal of Marketing and the Journal of Consumer Research. Ashley also serves as an associate editor of the JCR, the Journal of Consumer Research. Uh, she's a winner of the Sid Levy Award for contribution of her dissertation research to consumer culture theory. Uh, Ashley has a PhD in marketing from the Kellogg School Northwestern. Ashley, welcome to NBRI. How are you doing these days? Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here in Chicago. The sun is shining, the snow is melting. Uh, so I'm feeling good. That's a lot to say about the weather in Chicago, but uh, wonderful. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how you would like to describe yourself. I've used the uh, typical boilerplate uh, introduction of yourself. Uh, how would you best describe yourself, maybe in five words or less? Sure. Uh, you know, I would say that I study processes that are larger and longer than those that are typically studied in marketing. Uh, you know, marketing tends to look at the individual and the firm. And I tend to study processes that are longer, that are historical, and that involve more than one firm as industries uh, emerge and change. So th that, that's what you study, but I'd like you to describe yourself maybe oh in five words. I know it's oh a my gosh, hard. myself? Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I am, I like naps. Okay. <laughs> that's good to know. Uh, Yes. Uh, I like games. I'm very, I like kind of intellectual activity, um, crosswords and Scrabble and things like that. Um, and I'm a big, you know, kind of music and culture fan as well. Excellent. Yeah. Popular culture mainly or all kinds of cultures? All kinds. I mean, I, I like a good, I like a good book. I like a good reality show. I kind of run the gamut. Okay. All right. Like, that's good to know. So um, that let, let's start from that. Uh, you seem to have had a very interesting background, um, you know, and your research has also touched upon a number of different topics. Uh, tell us something about your research journey. Where did it get start, started and what are some of the transformations that you've experienced? Yeah. So, you know, reflecting on this, I, I thought, well, when I was little, I, when I was maybe seven or eight years old, I wanted, there was a TV show in the United States called uh, who's the boss right. and on who's the boss was this advertising executive, Angela. And she was a very powerful new woman. Um, I wanted to be Angela. I wanted to be an advertising executive. 
And then I became more enlightened. And about fifth grade, um, I wanted to run a newspaper. And so I started a newspaper called the Fifth Grade Press and distributed it to my class by printing it at Kinko's. Um, And it kind of ran into the ground pretty quickly. I think I was a canary in the coal mine of the changes in the news industry. (laughs) And so it's no surprise that I end up in a journalism school studying advertising and marketing. That's a perfect place for me. Um, In terms of my kind of intellectual journey, when I was an undergraduate, I was a philosophy major and I was an economics major. And I ended up writing two honors theses on plan to go to graduate school and in either marketing or in philosophy. Um, And I um, applied to graduate school in both. And I got into one school in philosophy, which was Johns Hopkins. And I got into one school in marketing, which was Kellogg. (laughs) And, you know, the life of a marketing professor seemed both actually more intellectually interesting and just more flexible and fun. Um, So based on that, I I started, you know, my, my grad school career. Um, yeah. And I mean, that led me to, to kind of shape my approach, um, given some of the faculty members there, I can tell you a little bit about my intellectual journey of my dissertation and how I chose the approach I landed on if you like, but that's sure. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. If you can just, uh, briefly walk us through that. And then from there, how did you move on to the different research topics that you've uh, yeah. chosen to work on? Yeah. Yeah. So when I was an undergraduate, I wrote this thesis on um, consumer-based versus firm-based valuations of brand value. Um, And it's a topic that I really found interesting and fun. This was building off of the work on um, like Kevin Keller's idea of brand value, consumer-based versus financial measures of brand value, such as um, this work by some accountants, Simon and Sullivan. Right. so that that was kind of some initial work. And then I when I came to Northwestern in grad school, I started to get much more into sociology. And I originally planned to study with uh, John Cherry, who is a consumer ethnographer. Right. And so I was trained in ethnography and I chose a project and I went out very dutifully with my notepad and my pencil um, to the casinos here in Gary, Indiana. And I interviewed a lot of people to find out about casino gambling And at some point it just became too depressing. (laughs) The people there could not tell me why they were gambling or why, you know, anything about the context. And so I decided to take a step back and to try to think about, well, no, really, why is this here? What, how did the casino come to be in Gary, Indiana? What were the legal and cultural and social forces that led it to be there? So I guess you could say I landed on the approach that I've taken with all my work because I just couldn't stomach doing ethnography anymore <laughs> and casinos. Oh, gotcha. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah. So you started now treating uh, gambling as an activity that is driven by so- sociological processes. So you moved more towards a, a sociology from, shall we say, anthropology or uh, ethnography, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and uh, tell us a little bit about what kind of research you got started with that and how you've moved along from where you started. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, like any career, I sort of have that thread of research that I can, I'll talk about a little bit, but along the way, there have been implications that I followed up and those have formed other branches of my research. So in pursuing my dissertation, um, 
I had to figure out, well, in terms of method, how do you study those bigger processes of legal and cultural change? And so I became very um, attracted to text analysis, which marketers, people, marketing scholars didn't really use or know about. Um, and so I basically adopted that methodology um, and trained myself on it, used that in my dissertation, and then have really taken it forward from there to study many other things. Um, and it's a method that I just find fascinating. I love language. I love seeing how language shapes perceptions and cultural meaning. Um, and so basically, I ha still have my legitimacy stream of research in which I've gone on to now study the role of product form in people's perceptions of legitimacy. So recently, um, the cannabis or recreational marijuana industries become uh, legalized in several states. And so we have a JCR coming out on the role of what products look like and smell like and feel like in that process. Um, and then, of course, I have this stream of text analysis where I like to do it. I write methods papers about how to do it. I try to teach people how to do it. You know, I really think it's something it's like a tool set that should be available to more people. Very good. So that you're bringing on the methodological dimension to the substantive aspects. And it's a very interesting how you brought it all to study different uh, industries and different um, uh, parts of marketing. And, you know, uh, so let's start with the, the uh, I, when you have this view that the markets are more of a sociological process, right? Uh, tell us a little bit about that view and what can we gain from that? What insights are there? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, so the basic point of view, and, you know, it's not like I created this theory out of myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. So sociologists and organization scholars have um, used something called institutional theory for a while. Right, right. Yeah, to study like how institutions are established, um, what causes us to, to trust them, how do they become like enduring parts of society? Um, so when we think about, I don't know, a school, what is a school and what does it mean to go to a school and are schools okay? And all those things in the study of institutions I've applied to studying markets. And so when we look at a market, um, like let's just say cannabis, since it's more top of mind, when we look at the marijuana or cannabis industry, people have a certain set of associations with that, but um, those it hasn't been a legitimate market, a legal market, uh, really, I guess, ever. Um, so how do you set something like that up? I mean, part of it is legislation. Obviously, it's been legalized in some states, but there are a lot of other processes that have to happen. That is not everybody thinks it's okay immediately to participate in this market, just like casino gambling or just like a number of other markets. So cultural perceptions need to change and marketers, if they're interested in promoting that industry can work to strategically change perceptions um, in, in ways that, you know, we can go into. But um, yeah, so cultural perceptions change and even knowledge about the industry changes. So, um, you know, what does it mean to, to consume marijuana or cannabis or what does it mean to go to a casino? Um, and I think that area has a broad application for just how people learn about things, how people learn about markets, even things like healthcare or wine. You know, the public is always in the process of gaining knowledge about things um, as consumers and thereby also figuring out if that's okay or not. Okay. 
et so, so what what I hear from you and looking at all the cross section of the industries that you talked about, so you seem to have a, a, a fascination or maybe a passion for studying the vice industry, if I may <laughs> use the term. You know, you talked about gambling, you talked about cannabis and maybe wine, probably indulgent yeah. products, maybe hedonic, hedonic products. Yeah. Uh, let's put it that way. But it seems to be that you, you are interested in finding out how sociologically people interact and how, uh, you know, legislation and the norms uh, influence ca uh, customer perception and how, what implication does this have for marketers in, in terms of uh, how they affect uh, the way that you market and how you, the way you influence consumption. So, which brings me to uh, another piece of research that you and Greg have uh, worked on, which is the wine industry, which you talk about market driving uh, process. Now, tell us a little bit about that uh, research and what are some of the key insights from their research? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think too, part of what you um, are saying about changing consumer perceptions we can build on to that in terms of looking at the wine research. So when markets develop, consumer perceptions change, but then we also find firms, companies can work together to build a market and to change perceptions about the market. Um, and also uh, companies can work with other stakeholders. So the media, with critics, with a lot of other people who shape the way that anybody would see the market, even the general public. Um, so in our paper about market driving, we basically take on um, the conventional wisdom that as a company, you should work to um, understand consumer needs and to create products to meet those consumer needs. It's a venerable perspective in marketing. It's, you know, it's very, I have no issue okay. with it. With it. <laughs> um, so it's the market orientation perspective. Um However, it may not fit all industries. In wine, for instance, if you go and ask consumers what they want in a wine or can you tell wine A from wine B, they don't know. <laughs> they can't tell you. They can't tell you how, you know, this um, Cabernet Sauvignon from... Um, Merlot, some kind of a Merlot, right? Yeah, but like how, how this one from... Yeah. California from like Santa Barbara differs from this one from San Francisco or Napa Valley. Like that, that is just too fine a distinction for most consumers. Um, and most consumers, frankly, don't care <laughs> that much. Um, however, so, so we think that this gives this open space for firms to drive the market. Um, now, to give you some other examples where this applies, you know, you think about technology, for instance, consumers aren't experts in technology. They don't know what's possible in the technological landscape. Um, they could not tell you how to design an electric car or what its uses should be, right? And so we think that there, there's a space for firms to drive markets, to actually uh, tell consumers what they want, to show consumers what they might like. Um, not from a necessarily a top-down perspective, but working with critics and others to shape the tastes or the needs in the market, um, both for consumers, but also for other firms that might follow the leader. Right. So the whole industry can be shaped by a few players, including the firms, by influencing customer perception, uh, as you rightly said. So what you seem to be talking about are products or services that are experience uh, 
products. And wine is a good example, but the technology is an issue. It's not necessarily experience, but in terms of what is possible in terms of utility or value to the consumer. Uh, and as you can see, even my background is a wine valley. Oh, right? yes, yeah. <laughs> so if you say, uh, I think, I believe it's a Chapelle in uh, California. Mm -hmm. So I think nothing could be more appropriate than that. But uh, the, um, the point here is that you mentioned that for certain industries, it's market driving is more amenable or possible. And, you know, having worked with Greg and, you know, you, Greg and I have worked on a lot of projects. So I completely ag agree with that view. But for uh, for the listeners and viewers, uh, uh, tell tell us something about why in these industries it's possible when the other industries it's not so possible. In mm -hmm. other words, what is it, if, if a firm were to come and say, you need to buy this uh, brand of wine because it's, you know, very, very, uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's so prestigious, it's so uh, status oriented, and you would like it, right? How does that uh, marketing work here? Uh, and why does it not work in other industries where, uh, you know, let's say footwear or fashion? Uh, if the firms were to say the same thing and some people may still not buy it. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what makes this more market dri drivable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it may also apply to things like fashion. Um, a lot of things can be this kind of status or taste base, but I would start from seeing it as a social system. So, mm -hmm. you know, when, when people are thinking about wine or what wine should we get, it, it's a whole system where there are different kinds of consumers with different levels of expertise. And they're basically looking for cues about what would be good wine. And so the, this whole process of market driving really starts by um, socially engineering, essentially. So um, let's start with the product, for instance. Think about, you know, a particular... A, a wine. It can have different attributes. It can have different alcohol content. You can work with different flavors very technically, right? So you basically start by creating a wine and creating a sense of um, artisticness about it. Like, you know, um, inspiration. I, wine was inspired to, to make this high alcohol wine from Napa Valley or whatever. So it kind of begins with the winemaker and the charisma that the winemaker has and the social meaning attached to her or him. And then market uh, firms can drive the market by disseminating that vision um, kind of down through the social system. Um, there's a scholar, Grant McCracken, who had an article um, a long time ago, I want to say maybe 1988, on how tastes move through, filter through a system. And for an industry like wine, it can be different in other industries. Um, it kind of begins from the top, from like the elites on down. And so, um, you know, you have this new wine that has high alcohol content. You can basically tell the story to critics, get some influential critics to buy into the vision. And they um, inspire the retailers and maybe a few select retailers in San Francisco start selling your wine. And then bloggers start going to these wine stores and on down, right? And so you can think of it not as just like a linear process from company A to consumer B, but this whole way in which the vision and the message and the meaning of the product filters down. So that, that brings us to, sounds eerily similar to social media marketing or influencer marketing, yeah. where you do the same things, right? You're trying to really 
create a cult uh, image for your product or service by having people promote this, especially influencer marketing and talking about it. You've written that book. So love to hear from your thoughts on the enduring principles that you talk about um, because nowadays we see in the TikTok world uh, how much a single celebrity can move a product mm-hmm. to social acceptance and you know increase the value of these products. Is, is it only restricted to certain types of products where you know people consume it and use it and display it in uh, among other people so that they can gain social acceptance? So take going back to wine for example. Wine is uh, not only uh, a product consumed by the individual, but it's also is uh, consumed in social occasions, right? So you invite uh, guests over, you know, for a meal or a get together or a party, and all of it, uh, people want to be seen to be using the best wine. So even if they cannot evaluate the wine, um, they because it's experiential and they may not have the knowledge, they at least feels get some comfort by following the experts' recommendations. Uh, similarly, in social media, when you have an influencer, uh, you know, blogging, tweeting, uh, you know, videoing uh, a product, uh, the uh, prospective user looks at it and say, hey, if I use this product, I'll gain social acceptance. So do you think that some of that is going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um... I think that for sure, influencer marketing and this kind of stuff, this perspective is very compatible with what we find about market driving and the role of all these intermediaries. I think the temptation is to think of it as kind of universally applied across the board. So like if you're a company that sells sneakers, let's just sign up some influencers and blast the message out, right? That's the temptation. However, um, I think this, the people who do it well, the companies that do it well, think of it more as storytelling and think of it more as a social system where you you would step back and think, okay, which communities do we really want to be in mm-hmm. online, for instance? Who are the people who really authentically speak to those uh, communities? And sort of navigating your way in there as a brand in a way that kind of is compatible with the culture of whatever communities you're into. Um, so, you know, I teach influencer marketing all the time and it's tempting for um, students and for others to just go in and say, oh, we need influencers and we need 10 influencers and this is how many followers they need to have, right? From metri- a very metrics oriented perspective. And I certainly appreciate metrics, but when you're really thinking about the execution of how to promote these products, it has to be in a social system and it has to be in a, in a way that kind of makes sense. Um, just a quick reference for your listeners, if you're interested in looking at this, um, the branding scholar, Doug Holt, Douglas Holt has a HBR paper about this from a few years ago. Um, that's based on the idea of crowd cultures. So if you're interested in some of that thinking, that's, I would highly recommend that article. Excellent. Thank you. So uh, let, let me now move on to your research uh, in gambling, for example, right? You started with that uh, as uh, inspiration or lack of inspiration, the story that you talked about in uh, Gary, Indiana. Um, so in what way is gambling uh, symptomatic of a product or service that uh, would be amenable to maybe uh, this idea of market driving 
or the fact that it is an outcome of uh, sociological processes that gets shaped and reshaped over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it's a complex story, of course. You could say that, look, gambling is something that people wouldn't do unless there was an industry there. And if we outlawed the industry, then people wouldn't do it, right? That would be the the kind of really market driving approach. On the other hand, of course, we see that's not true, that illegal gambling markets existed before it was legal. And, right. you know, there. <laughs> so there is some sense in which there's a bottom up process as well of people who would who would do it. But I think we're kind of looking for that big middle of people who, you know, may not consider gambling um, until they're presented with it or may not consider this type of wine until they're presented with it. Right. Um, so it is a bit of a process of meeting in the middle. Okay, sounds good. Uh, now, you also have done some work on co-creation, co-production, or uh, prosumption, if I may use the word, which is production and consumption. Um, so what are some of the insights from that research? And specifically, how does a sociological angle uh, produce some new insights in there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so co-creation or prosumption or <laughs> any of these terms, you know, it seemed like, and I teach it still in class, it seems like an issue that was really hot for a while, a marketing practice that was really hot. And a lot of people were thinking about it and talking about it. And it seems to have receded a little bit as other things that happen on the internet basically <laughs> come, come to the fore. But, you know, in studying, so um, my former advisor, Kent Grayson, and I wrote this paper about con- uh, co-production. and um, I think the insights we gained there were that a lot of the research kind of approaches co-creation from um, an individual perspective. So what do I as the individual get out of customizing this shoe or creating a new design for a tent or whatever it is? A lot of the work looks at, okay, what value do do I get from it as a consumer? Um, And then what value might other consumers get from it, from my own activities? And I think what the sociological approach brought us there is kind of stepping above um, just those individual or dyadic interactions to look at what value is created overall. um, And then how is that value distributed? So if customers co-create something that's a really great idea, um, you know, we investigated, well, what are the norms around how that value is distributed, right? If the company can take that innovation and create money from it, where do those profits go? And um, what's kind of the normative or equitable distribution of it in different cases? So I think it led us to a perspective that kind of sits above what a lot of the individual practices um, are. So, you know, applying this to today's world, you mentioned that it's somehow gotten uh, diluted with uh, with the proliferation of internet usage. But I, I would think the other way that internet now allows you both uh, firms and consumers to interact more, come up with better ideas, better products. And you mentioned, right, some of the products, the consumers tweak it to customize it themselves. Um, this is the... Uh, the division of creation, the firms create some parts and the customer creates the other parts to make it more valuable to them. And then there are other things that customer gives some ideas and suggestions that lead users that, mm-hmm. and that the firm takes and then applies it to a larger uh, uh, society and 
and there's an overall benefit. But then there's also this uh, co-creation of experiences like uh, Build-A-Bear, for example, where uh, you know the consumer goes into a toy store and then creates a bear for, uh, for the child. And that's a unique for the child to walk away with. It's a customization, but it's the, the whole thing is an experience mm-hmm. in terms of creation uh, as opposed to a product. And then there's also lots of products like 3D printing, which is a form of a consumer uh, doing the uh, production himself or herself, right? So where do you think this is actually headed? Because we've seen more and more possibilities where uh, consumers playing a lot more role in how the product or the service or the um, experience is created. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a great a great question. And so part of what we argue in the paper is that there's a really important distinction in the type of value that's created in co-creation between use value. So that's um, the value that the product is to you. So if I customize my Build-A-Bear um, that has value for me, right? And I take it home and I love it and that's great. Um, But then there's also exchange value. So this is the value that someone might co-create and that could then be sold to another another customer. So if I create um, like a new design for a -A Build-A-Bear that everybody loves and Build-A-Bear sells that design, then that would be exchange value. And so we think that's an important distinction for looking at some of these activities. Um, And then the question is, what are the norms and or laws about um, exchanging that exchange value, right? Right, right. Um, And we've seen in normal co-creation, there really aren't many. You kind of sign off your rights to your ideas when you participate in it. And that may be fine. But one place where I think we're starting to see some shift in some of the norms is around um, data and around privacy. The idea being that, well, all the data that I give to Google or to Facebook or whatever, they can take and organize and create exchange value out of potentially to sell to advertisers or whatnot. And um, so I think we started to see some experimentation with thinking about how much your data is worth and maybe can or should companies pay you for the use of your data? Conversations like that, I think, are where co-creation is going. Excellent. Now, that brings us to what you view as the key critical issues going forward into the future. So what are some of the uh, areas or insights you think are very critical in the next five to 10 years, which you yourself may be interested in studying, or you could be uh, suggesting to others to study? Yeah. So I'm interested in kind of two directions right now Um, in the world, just taking the world of social media. And this is a bit of a, a a little bit of a tangent, but it's just something that because of circumstances I've gotten into um, is the use of social media data as legal evidence. Um, So anytime that there's kind of new information available or systems change for tracking information, um, it, that kind of gets incorporated into a big system that deals with it. And so I've just found personally a few cases lately have really hinged on um, a, a defamation case, for instance, right? Think of a defamation case. It might really hinge on uh, information cascades and how a piece of information travels, um, how far it travels, how broadly it travels and whatnot. Um, anyway, so I'm just starting to see a lot of legal cases that have use of 
um, measuring information cascades, using textual data to show various brand associations for trademark cases, or there's just like a lot of interesting ways that text data and social media data is being um, used now in the courts. And I think that's pretty interesting and want to explore that some more kind of as a, um, a continuation of my text analysis work. Um, the other area that I see a lot of things happening in is um, basically in complex organizations. So I have a project with a team of, um, it's me, Greg Carpenter, um, Les Torres at UIC and Beth. Um, I think she publishes, I don't know, Beth Scouten maybe? I don't know how, what her name is she publishes on. Beth Dufault, maybe. Um, anyway, we have a big project on hospitals. We have so much data, so much interview data from people at hospitals that I should say health systems um, at all different levels. So the very top level senior management, doctors, nurses, patients, social workers, you name it. It's a huge project to collect data from about six health systems in the United States. And we're looking at those in terms of as complex organizations that have to deal with um, sometimes very conflicting logics. So the mission of a health of a hospital is to um, make you better, to treat you as a patient. But of course we know that that has changed significantly in the last 10 or 15 years that um, hospitals have adopted somewhat of a mar market oriented logic to package their services, to see you as a customer and all that, right? So a hospital is just an example of a organization that's very complex, right? And has to con contend with a number of different logics, a health logic, a market logic, um, kind of a liability logic. There are all these things kind legal. of competing. Yeah, legal logics um, that are sort of competing. And there are all these multiple stakeholders. So the doctors want autonomy. The CEOs want, you know, to cut down on errors. Yeah, the patients want to be treated as a unique snowflake. Like there's just all kinds of competing interests um, that are very complex and that managers have to deal with. How do I deal with that complexity? And hospitals are not by any means unique. You can think of the same thing as how happening in education, for instance. Um, there are lots of institutions where complexity is becoming um, more the, the norm rather than the exception. So that's very interesting. So you mentioned the uh, use of uh, text analysis in uh, in a legal framework mm -hmm. or issues relating to marketing, and also this uh, studying complex institutions such as a healthcare institution. That's great. Now, on the same note, let me also ask you: We have viewers who cut across different uh, stakeholders. Um, they range from students to former students to executives to public policy officials. Uh, PhD students, um, you know, other faculty members, uh, what message would you have for them uh, in terms of going forward? What are some of the things they should be doing differently, thinking differently? We also have a large number of companies, including retailers, uh, who are um, interested in your views on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, based on what I said, I think it's easy to think it's easy to be overwhelmed by all that complexity. Um, if you're in the middle of one of these organizations, it's like, oh my gosh, where do I start? Um, equally, there's so much data available. And even if you include text data, there's so much text data. Um, and so it's easy to feel overwhelmed. 
At the same time, it's also um, probably even more overwhelming to see the skill sets that are out there and the ways that very smart people have of working with fancy, like in very fancy methods. Um, And I would say, you know, with fancy data approaches and seemingly complex processes, you know, you can do it (laughs) is my, is my basic message for teaching text analysis and other things. I would say, don't be intimidated by something that seems really fancy or seems really complex. Um, And usually my message in using text analysis, for instance, is to, you don't always have to rely on the experts um, to understand something, right? Experts, of course, are helpful and very useful, but we also need to know how to interact with experts, um, how to talk with them, how to interface with them. So for instance, you know, if you have a complex problem that you're dealing with, I think sometimes the temptation is it's so complex and overwhelming, just, just farm it out, just get an expert to deal with it, right? But I, I don't think that's the right approach. I think better success comes to people who do a little bit of investigation into the complexity, train themselves a bit on whatever the problem is. Um, even if you are interested in doing some data analysis, you can even do that. You know, It's really not as complex as you might think. And then you're able to better um, interface with the experts. Well, that's interesting because that's very relevant right now, even as a lot of organizations, including retailer, so grappling with this pandemic management, which is this sort of complexity management, right? And uh, so your message to them is to not be overwhelmed by the complexity, uh, but dig a little bit deeper, maybe roll up your sleeves and try to get uh, into the trenches a little bit. Don't get intimidated by data, but embrace the data and then become an intelligent user or a um, intelligent appreciator of the problems and the data and then work with the experts. Is that a fair description of what you're trying to say? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it may be a matter of not just be having one liaison to the expert, but even two or three if it's a really complex problem, but it's always okay. going to help you to be informed about what's going on. That's excellent. So on that note, I wanted to thank you very much for the uh, exciting conversation. You've provided us with a lot of insights on some of your research, which is very unique and brings a new perspective to our understanding of problems and the marketing lens. Thank you very much, Ashley, and uh, wish you all the very best in your future research. I'm eagerly looking forward to reading uh, some of your upcoming research. Thank you. Thank you for having me.